So that'll that'll be our plan for next week, and uh, we'll just uh, cover as much as we can cover uh, before we uh, before we join them for that baptism. But uh, <clears throat> but we are uh, today we are at the end of chapter 22. And the first part of chapter 23, if you, had, if you had a chance to look at the passage and look at the study sheet for, uh, for today, uh, you probably detected that it's, this is really kind of two lessons in one today. They're not, uh, they're not necessarily uh, uh, logically connected in some kind of profound theological sense. Uh, but we're kind of in a transition at this point. We have... Uh, we have completed uh, the, the bulk of our study of the life of Abraham and, and, and with our com- uh, completion of most of chapter 22, the story of the binding of Isaac, we've really kind of reached the climax and, and passed through the climax of uh, uh, the study of Abraham's life. And uh, we are reaching the end of this, uh, this particular Taladot. Now, we've talked about Taladots before, and it's been a long time because we've been in one Taladot now for a number of months. But do you remember what a Taladot is? This is, I know, you old folks, this is really making you have to go back and fight your way through your Alzheimer's and try and remember this, folks. But what is a Taladot? Yeah, he's giving me that kind of, he's bending his head over like, I'm trying to remember this one. <laughs> okay, okay, kind of related to a timeline, yeah. Okay. Okay. It's, okay, okay, the word Taladot basically means generations or generation. And, and when we started the book of Genesis, we discovered that the book of Genesis is divided into ten Taladots. It's actually, actually there are eleven sections to the book of Genesis. The first section is just the preface or the prelude. And that begins, of course, at the very beginning and goes into the first part of chapter 2. And then beginning in chapter 2, we have the first Taladot. And the rest of the book of Genesis is divided up into these ten Taladots or these ten generations. Okay? And... Uh, uh, or, or actually not ten generations, but they're ten kind of divisions of generations. Okay, So the first Taladot that we ran into was called the Taladot or the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then we had the Taladot of Adam or the generations of Adam. Uh, and, uh, and then we had the generations of Seth. And then we had the generations of Noah. And then we had the generations of Noah's sons. And then we had the generations of Shem. And, and now we are in the generations of terror or the Taladot of terror. And that's what we've been in since actually clear back in, in uh, December is when we started uh, this, the, this particular Taladot. And as we mentioned, uh, the Taladot, uh, when, it, when, it, when, when, when the name is given to the Taladot, for example, for example, the Taladot of Shem or the generations of Shem, it's not really about Shem but it's about Shem's descendants, okay? And uh, the Taladot of Adam and Eve is not really about Adam and Eve. Their story was covered in the Taladot of the heavens and the earth, okay? But the Taladot of Adam uh, uh, covers uh, uh, the story of Adam's immediate descendants, okay? So we have been, for the last number of months, in the Taladot of Terah, okay? Terah being the father of Abraham. And we spent our whole time uh, pretty much our whole time in the Taladot of Terah talking about the life of Abraham. This is the longest one in the entire book of Genesis. Okay, But we are now reaching the end of this Taladot. We are reaching the end of the story of Abraham. And in our passage today, we're going to go back and we're going to look at uh, the other surviving son of Terah. And that's a guy by the name of, of uh, uh, Nahor. Excuse me. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so we're really kind of in a transition here and we're just kind of wrapping up the story of Abraham. And we're going to do this for a couple chapters because we're going to talk about 
We're going to talk about it today, and we're going to talk about uh, Nahor today, and then we're going to talk about the death of Sarah, and then we get into the whole story about the, the negotiation for a burial place for Sarah, uh, which uh, takes uh, virtually all of the chapter, all of chapter 23, and and that's kind of interesting that he spends an entire chapter talking about Abraham's effort to secure. Uh, a plot of burial, a burial ground for Sarah. So there's obviously some significance to it because the Holy Spirit has decided to spend an uh, entire chapter of the book of Genesis, an entire chapter of Scripture, talking about this negotiation between Abraham and the sons of Heth, uh, these Hittites, uh, in order to secure a burial place for, for Sarah. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, uh, today and next week. Uh, and since next week will be a short lesson the week following. Uh, so we're going to spend some time on that. And then we have the story in chapter 24 uh, about Abraham's efforts to secure a bride for, uh, for Isaac. And that's quite a lengthy chapter. I think it's like 67 chapters, 67 verses long or so. So that's quite a lengthy story. But we really are still just kind of wrapping up the story of Abraham. So we're really in a transition here. And... Uh, that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. Okay. But last week, uh, before we read the passage uh, that we're going to be looking at, passages we're going to be looking at today, uh, last week we were completing our study of the story of the binding or the offering of Isaac in chapter 22. What do you remember that we talked about from last week? or over the last several weeks about that story? What are the things that stick out to you? There was a continual reference that <clears throat> Isaac is Abraham's only son. Your son, your only son. Mm-hmm. And then over and over again, the seed, the seed, the seed. So there's a definite... Once you know that this is a problem. Yeah. This is the only problem. This is the only This is the whole ball of wax here, isn't it? Yeah. This is this is the whole thing right here and it's all wrapped up in Isaac. What else? This section needs to be looked at in three ways historical. Okay. What actually happened, what long term consequences of what Abraham did. Okay. And also the Okay. Okay. Yeah. There are three ways the passage must be looked at and understood. One is it's a real event. This really happened in the life of a real guy by the name of Abraham and his teenage son Isaac. Okay. This is something that really happened in their life and it needs to be looked at in that context and needs to be understood from that context. And there's a great deal, as we saw, that we could glean from and understand and learn about God and about faith and etc. Just from the, from the real event as it happened there at that particular point uh, in the life of Abraham. So there is the historical story and that needs to be understood. Okay? Then having understood that, then we have to look at the passage uh, at the event from the broader perspective, the broader historical significance. What is the greater significance of this event? And what was the greater significance of the event? This wasn't just something that happened in Abraham and Isaac's life, but it had some significance or some bearing in history. And what is that? Okay. 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 The most the most profound or most significant aspect of it is that is that God is God at the conclusion of the of the uh, incident there as He speaks to Abraham restates the promise that He has made before. He restates the promise to Isaac about his descendants and particularly about this seed through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as we look at that passage uh, in the context of the New Testament, we understand it very clearly that that is a 
that that, that, that is, a, uh, among other things, is a reference to the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Savior that's going to come and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, it's, so it has, uh, it has a, a historical significance or a long-range uh, long significance uh, in part on us and on our lives uh, and implications for our lives. But what else? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We we see there at the end after Abra- after Abraham shows his willingness to offer his son, uh, and he doesn't withhold his son. That God says, because you do this, I have sworn by myself. And so God gives to Abraham, in addition to his previous promise, God then swears by himself. He gives an oath. Okay, so it's like he he heaps upon Benjamin, upon Abraham even more assurance, even more confidence that God is really going to do this thing and he's really going to complete this thing and that Abraham, uh, that Abraham's uh, descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the, sea, the, stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore uh, and that they're going to possess the gate of their enemies and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this, so it's like, like, God says, if you if you walk by faith, if you trust me, if you have confidence in me and you obey me by faith, I am going to make my word even more certain and more sure to you. And that's what he does here in Abraham's experience. Okay, so there was the historical event. We looked at it from the historical perspective of what actually happened. And then we looked at the at the long range implications of what happened, that it has a bearing on the nation of Israel, on the descendants of Abraham and has a bearing on us. And then we looked at it in the third respect, which Rick mentioned was the was the issue of uh, how it serves as a type. And what do we mean by that? Okay, okay. A type is just simply something that happens or something that is given, typically in the Old Testament, which is a picture or an illustration that God has given us of something else that's going to happen later. And it's, it's typically a type is, is something that is seen, something that is tangible, something we can understand because we can touch it and see it and, and feel it. And uh, it's, so it's something that's tangible that's given as an illustration of something that is intangible or unseen. Okay. And so this whole story of Isaac and uh, Abraham and Isaac and the binding, the offering of Isaac and the provision of the ram, this all serves as a type. It's a tangible thing that actually happened in history that serves as an illustration of something which heretofore has been unseen. Okay which is hard to understand. And that is the substitutionary death of God's own son. Okay, so we have then this passage serves as a type or serves as an illustration. And we mentioned several different illustrations that God gives in the Old Testament of other things, unseen things. For example, the tabernacle is a is an illustration that God gives. God loves to make it easy for us to understand the things that are important for us to understand. And he gives us these illustrations. So in the Old Testament, he gave the children of Israel the tabernacle. And that was an illustration in some respects of the throne of God and the, and, and the, and the dwelling of God. And the sacrifices, of course, were loaded with all kinds of significance and uh, to help the children of Israel understand uh, the whole plan of redemption, etc. Okay. And so uh, this event in the life of Abraham and Isaac serves as a type. And we talked about the fact that that it, that it really kind of serves as uh, or has kind of two different sets of types in the story. What were those? Okay, one set is Isaac and the ram. That's one we commonly think about, okay? That Isaac, Isaac and the ram represent something in the future. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the type set of Isaac and the ram, what does Isaac represent? Us, okay? 
And what does the ram represent? Christ. Okay. So, uh, so there is that type set. Isaac representing us and the ram representing the Lord Jesus who was given as a sacrifice as an offering in our place or in our stead. Okay. But there's another type set there. And what is that? Okay, Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham represents the Heavenly Father and Isaac represents uh, the Son of God. Okay, so Abraham, as we as we as we went through and we looked at the story and we saw what Abraham went through as he as he went through this process of, of preparing to offer his son. And we see ultimately that God says about Abraham, he did not withhold his son. And then we're reminded of that of, of the verse in, in Romans chapter eight, where uh, where Paul says about God that he did not withhold his only son. We see that parallel between Abraham, the father of Isaac and the heavenly father, the father of uh, of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. Okay, and so Abraham in that case serves as the type of the father, and God the Father is the antitype. And then, and then Isaac in that case serves as the type of Christ, Jesus being the antitype. Okay, and in Isaac, then we see as he willingly submits himself to his father's will and allows himself to be bound and placed upon the altar, we see that picture of the Lord Jesus who willingly surrendered himself to be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. And uh, and one thing we pointed out a couple weeks ago, and Rick and I were talking about this after class last week, is that this is that the is the, the that every analogy, every typology breaks down at some point. You can't get a perfect parallel. And of course, the dramatic contrast between uh, between the type and the anti-type is that. God, when he did not withhold his son, means that he actually did have to offer his son and his son actually had to die. Okay? So there's profound significance in this whole story, the binding of Isaac, on these three different levels. The actual event as it happened is profound and significant in and of itself. It has profound uh, historical uh, lasting, enduring significance in the nation of Israel and ultimately in our plan of redemption. And it has significance as a type or as an illustration of what God did for us. So, so those are things that we looked at last week. Anything else that we looked at last week that you want to mention before we go on? Okay, let's pick it up then in verse 20 of chapter 22. And uh, he says, now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Camul, uh, the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Hazel, and Pildash, and Jidlath, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tehash and Makah. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham arose uh, before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. We're going to interrupt the story right there. It obviously goes on, uh, but we'll be doing good if we get that far today. So um, we'll stop there. So as I mentioned, we're really kind of dealing with two different things today. We're dealing with the... This uh, report that Abraham receives about his brother back in the land of Haran. And then we're dealing with the story uh, of the death of Abraham's wife. Okay. Well, when we when we first read this uh, story here, beginning in verse 20 about this report that Abraham receives, several questions kind of come into our mind. And I guess. Probably the first question that comes to my mind when I read this is, where did this report come from? Who who brings this report? It just just tells us that Abraham received this report, uh, and, and we really don't know. 
I think uh, probably most people presume, probably logically so, that somebody obviously has been traveling. Someone's traveling from uh, from uh, Peyton Haran, from the land, uh, from the city of Haran. Somebody who has knowledge of Abraham's brother Nahor, has knowledge of the family, maybe is an acquaintance of the family, or maybe somebody who was just traveling through Haran and encountered the family. And, and then carries news about, the, about Abraham's family down to Canaan. And when he encounters Abraham in Canaan, uh, he, he reports to him about his family's doings back home. We really, we really don't uh, know for sure how he gets this report, but, uh, but, he, but he obviously gets this report from somebody. And it's significant. It's added at this point in the story. And you'll notice it says after these... Uh, beginning there at the uh, beginning, it says, now it came about after these things. Now, if you go back in chapter 22 to verse 1, you'll see it says, now it came about after these things. Okay, so the same phrase is used. And when we looked at chapter, uh, at the, the earlier part of chapter 2, we came to understand by putting the pieces of the puzzle together that, that we've really moved a number of years forward in the story from the birth of Isaac to the story of the binding of Isaac because now by now I, Isaac is uh, uh, obviously in either his uh, late adolescence or early teen years I assume he's an early, early teenager by the time of the binding of Isaac and so that phrase after, uh, after these things actually represented the passage of a number of years now we encounter that same phrase again here as we uh, as we begin this story about this report that Abraham received. So we would assume that there are, that some number of years has passed uh, since the binding of Isaac. Okay. Now, but when you get down to chapter uh, 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 23, and he goes on to tell the story of Sarah, he doesn't add that phrase. You notice that? He just goes right into the death of Sarah after the uh, story about the report. We we make a big division there because because somebody has put a chapter division there, but the chapter divisions aren't inspired. They're just added there for our convenience. And so we might assume that there's been a major break there, but there doesn't appear to be a major break chronologically or time-wise. What I'm trying to say is it appears that this report that Abraham receives is close to the time of Sarah's death. Okay? So, uh, because there seems to be a significant break in time between the binding of Isaac and the reception of Isaac's report, or the reception of, of Abraham's report, there seems to be a major break there, but there's no major break between the receiving of the report and the death of Sarah. So, I would tend to put the report that Abraham receives close to the death of Sarah. Okay? When is the death of Sarah? Right. So it was 37 years after that. Okay. Good. You do well with your math. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yep. This is 37 years after the birth of Isaac that Sarah dies. Okay. And so Isaac is uh, uh, 37 years at the time of the death of his, of his mother. Uh, and if, in fact, we put this report that Abraham has received close to the time of the death of his uh, the death of his wife, then we would assume that he's receiving this report uh, sometime uh, approximately, let's say, 30 years or 35 years or so after the birth of Isaac. So Isaac is 30, 35 years old. Okay. Now, when we get to chapter 24, we're going to see that with Isaac, what we have here is a failure to launch. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Isaac is... Isaac is uh, 37 years old here. His mother dies. He's still not married. She never had the privilege of seeing her son get married and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, but there's reasons for that. And we'll discuss those reasons more in detail when we get to chapter 24. But it's very clear that Abraham does not want Isaac marrying someone from the land of Canaan. Okay. And that, hence, is the significance of this report that he receives from Haran. Now, it seems by the way the story unfolds that Abraham, since he received that instruction from the Lord clear back in chapter 12, verse one, 
to leave his, his home, to leave his country, to leave his family, and to leave his relatives. And the Lord's very emphatic about making a break there and going somewhere that he's going to show him, which ultimately ends up being the land of Canaan. That Abraham was to make a break with his family, and it seems like in leaving his family, he really made the break. Okay, earlier here in class, before we got started with the lesson, we were talking about our kids moving all over the country and all over the world, and about how easy it is nowadays to keep up with them with with uh, text messaging and Skype and email and all those sorts of things, you know. So if I want to, you know, talk to my daughter in the Caribbean, you know, I just send her a text and tell her to get on the computer on Skype and we just sit there and look at each other and talk. And it's all very easy, but obviously when Abraham left Haran, it wasn't quite that easy. And I think it's fairly safe to assume that Abraham has heard virtually nothing about his family for the last 50 years. It's a long time since he left Heron. And they don't have email and they don't have the U.S. Postal Service and they don't have text messaging and they don't have Skype and they don't have all that sort of stuff. And so the only news he gets is if somebody's traveling along the the uh, the, the great uh, uh, crescent route there from Mesopotamia down into Egypt and somebody happens to encounter Tara's family in Haran and encounter Abraham, who's a nomad wandering around in Canaan. So obviously, uh, uh, Terah and Terah's family and, and Abraham's uh, brother Nahor, uh, they couldn't just say, well, yeah, when you get to such and such a place, look, Abraham, because they don't know where Abraham is because he just wanders around. You know, we've seen him at one time. He's at Shechem. Another time he's at Bethel. Another time he's in Egypt. Another time he's at at Hebron, another time he's at Beersheba, then he's back at Bethel, and he's back, you know, he's all over the place. So how are you going to find him? Okay. But there comes a point in time where finally Abraham gets this word about his brother. Now, if you remember clear back in, uh, in uh, uh, chapter 11, and when we were at the end of chapter 11, we were beginning this Taladot, the Taladot of Terah, is that we have Abraham's father, Terah, Use this marker. It's uh, on its last uh, last ink here. And Terah had three sons. What were their names? Okay, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Okay. I'm not going to do a lot here, but go ahead. Well, give it a try. Okay. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, if, you're, uh, if, if you haven't done this already, you might flip back there to chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, because that's where all this is recorded. Uh, let me flip back there, too, so I get this, uh, get this right. Because <laughs> it can get a little confusing. Okay. Uh, and uh, so Tara had three sons. And what happened to Haran? He died, okay? So he died back in, uh, back in the land of Ur, right? Okay? Uh, but before he died, he had some children, right? Okay? He had Lot, and who else did he have? <clears throat> you might have to read down through it. Thank you. Uh, you might have to read down through it a little bit there to catch that. Okay, he had Milka. That's a that's a woman. Okay. Ah, that's much better. Thank you. Okay. So he had Lot and Milka. What happened to Lot? Now don't say a lot. Okay, he went with Abraham. When Abraham left Haran, he went with Abraham, and we followed his story as he went down, and then. Uh, Abraham and he separated in the whole story with Sodom and Gomorrah and he ends up in the mountains and the whole incest thing and it's not a very pretty story. Okay, that's Lot. Okay. What happened to Milka? She married Nahor. Okay. So he married his niece. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> And we get this funny look like, oh, that's weird. Okay, well, it is weird today, but it wasn't weird back then. And actually, we're going to see a lot of this kind of thing. Remember, Abraham actually married. Uh, uh, Sarah was uh, related to Abraham. Okay, so 
Heron died. Lot goes off to, you know, that whole scenario. But Milka marries Nahor. And so what we see is Terah, who is in this line of descent of the promised seed that was given to Eve after the fall in the garden. And Terah is in that line and he has three sons. And of those three sons, these two lines, the line of Nahor and the line of Haran, are merged into one line in Nahor and uh, Milcah. Okay? And, uh, and then they have, uh, they have children. And how many children do they have? Trick question. Pardon? They have eight. Okay. It actually lists 12 children in the report. Okay. Well, actually, let's look at this very closely. Go back to chapter 23. And I want you to notice what the translators have done. At least they have in my translation and they probably have in uh, yours as well. Chapter 22 uh, there at the end. It says it came about after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has also borne uh, children to your brother Nahor. Notice that there are quotation marks right there before the words, Behold, Milcah. Okay, there's quotation marks. That is the beginning of the report. So, in other words, the first part of verse 20 is narrative, and the second part of verse 20 is part of the report. Okay, where do the quotation marks end? At the end of 22, okay. Now, let me point out, the quotation marks are not in the original. They are added by the translators. But translators in general understand that the report consisted of the report of the children born to Nahor by Milcah. Okay. The rest of, the, the rest of what is added here appears to be narrative. It's added by the narrator. It's added by... Moses or from whomever Moses got his got this information when he wrote this down. It's but it's added by the narrator. It doesn't appear to be part of the original report. So we don't know whether Abraham was aware that there were other children besides the children of Milcah. But you'll notice that when the report comes to Abraham, uh, it says, uh, behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. And, and it seems like that, that the report that he's receiving is drawing some kind of a parallel or similarity between Milcah and Sarah. Okay? So that whoever the reporter is, whoever the person is who brings this news to Abraham, comes to Abraham, and the first thing he hears is that Abraham, in his old age, miraculously, by his faith and his wife's faith, has secured a child. Okay? And that's the first thing they hear because when they because that's the big news, okay? And then as soon as the reporter hears that Abraham and Sarah have received this news, he says, Well, your brother has also been given children by Milcah. That implies that when Abraham left Haran Milcah had not yet born children to Nahor. Abraham didn't know that. Now he knows that Milcah also has born children. Okay? And so now we have a line of descent through Nahor and Milcah that is emerging of the line of descent through Nahor and Haran from Terah. Okay? But then the narrator tells us something. The youngest son of Abraham and Milcah is whom? Bethuel. Okay. And then the narrator tells us something about Bethuel's children. What does he tell us? Okay. He's the father of Rebekah. Okay. Now, we're actually going to find out uh, that he also has another child that will become a major player in the story as we go forward into chapter 24. Okay. But he tells us that uh, that uh, Nahor and Milcah have given birth uh, to Bethuel. And then Bethuel, who's, it's interesting, his name means born of God. Okay. Uh, that Bethuel, which is interesting because 
most of the family are idol worshippers, as we've already established. Okay, so most of the family of Terah are idol worshippers. But here you have this guy Bethuel, and his name means born of God. That's kind of an interesting uh, thing. I, I wouldn't put too much weight on it, but it is kind of interesting. I, I wonder if perhaps Bethuel was a believer. Uh, but at any rate, uh, he ha- he gives birth, or he doesn't give birth. He uh, <laughs> he begets. Uh, children and one of the children he begets is this woman named Rebecca. Why is that significant? Okay, she becomes Isaac's wife. So we have Rebecca, and she becomes the wife of Isaac. Okay, these two are joined, and from them, of course, come Jacob and Esau, and so we actually have. All the lines of descent from terror are all joined together by the time we get down here to Isaac and Rebekah. Okay? So, I don't know what God's doing there, but it's just kind of interesting how all that works out. And, and as we'll see when we get to this story of the, of the marriage, the joining of Isaac and Rebekah, that Abraham goes out of his way to make sure that he gets a wife for his son from this line. Okay? He makes a point of that. It's not incidental. It's not coincidental. But it's something that Abraham is trying to achieve. Okay? Uh, now, the narrator goes on to tell us that in addition to the, in addition to the, to the eight children of Nahor and Milcah, that Nahor had a concubine, and through his concubine he had what? How many children? Four. Okay. Now, he may have had more, but the narrator lists for us four to bring the number to twelve. Why is that significant? Does that ring a bell? Who else has had 12 children? Well, Jacob will, but he hasn't yet because Jacob isn't on the scene yet, right? Jacob will have 12. Who else? Ishmael has had 12. That's right. Ishmael has had 12 children. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking Ishmael's had 12 children and uh, Nahor's had 12 children. And then we have Abraham and he's got a promise, right? He's got the blessing of God on his life. He's the friend of God. And he's been promised descendants more than the stars of the heavens. How many children does he have? He has one. Actually, he has two, but you can pretty much write Ishmael off because by the time we get to chapter 22, he's calling Isaac his only son. Okay. So he has one. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, boy. And we've talked about this about Abraham before. He's, there's Abraham and, and he's got Isaac. And he looks around him and there's his brother Nahor and his brother Nahor, just just an ordinary pagan. He's got 12 kids. And then there's Ishmael over here. And I don't know by what time, by this point in the story how many Ishmael has, but eventually he ends up having 12 kids, right? So here's Ishmael. He's just living for the flesh. Yeah, he's just living according to the flesh. He has 12 kids. And then we have here Abraham, who's been walking with God and trusting with God and walking by faith these many, 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 many years. And he has one kid. Oh, really, doesn't it? It really does. But I was just thinking, do you think Abraham would have traded Isaac? For Ishmael's 12 or Nahor's 12? No, he wouldn't be. Because to Abraham, one that is the promise of God beats 12 who aren't. And I think about that because in my life, I don't know about you guys, but in my life, I, I really like to compare myself to other people a lot. And I look at other people that don't walk by faith and I walk by other people who don't try to obey God and follow God. And, 
And a lot of times they look like they're doing better than I'm doing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I actually find myself tempted that way quite often. And I go, well, Lord, what's the deal here? I, I try to walk by faith and live by faith and obey you. And, and, and here's these other people. They don't give you a thought. And, they, you know, they just they got, they got everything the world could give them. And then we're reminded of Abraham, who all he had was one. But on that one was the very promise of God. And for Abraham, that was enough. And I'm reminded of what Paul says when he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's what you have with Abraham here, don't you? You have a guy who just walked by faith all these years. And all he has is one. But because on that one is the promise and the blessing of God, Abraham knows that there is going to be an abundance through that one that he will be the father. And that's all he needs. And he believes it so strongly that he's willing to put that one to death in confidence that God would raise him from the dead because the blessing of God and the promise of God is on Isaac. And I just want to learn in my life and I hope that you learn in your life to value the one thing that we have that has the blessing and promise of God over 12 times that much that doesn't have the promise of God. Well, there's probably a lot more we could say about this. And, you know, a lot of this is, is preliminary to things that we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead. But, but we move on in the story now into chapter 23 and we encounter uh, the story of the death of Sarah. Now, the... One of the significant things here about this story of the death of Sarah is Sarah is the only woman in all of Scripture that tells us what her span of life was. Why? She is, if Abraham is the father of our faith, Sarah is the mother of our faith, isn't she? Man, what a woman. What a woman. Anybody who walked with Abraham all these years has got to be pretty outstanding. Okay, Abraham's a pretty great guy. We've pretty we've already concluded that, right? But but he doesn't have all this, you know. He doesn't have all those ducks in a row, you know. And uh, he makes some pretty serious mistakes. But but look at Sarah. Here's 127 years. What a life! What a life! And 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 it's a life of great blessing. She's had just. Tremendous blessing on her life because she's been married to Abraham and she's been able to enjoy all the blessings that God has given to Abraham and she's been able to walk with that and she's so she's had all these wonderful blessings. Well, she's had struggles very clearly. She has great struggles and she had all those many ninety years of barrenness. You know, well not ninety years, but she was ninety before she had a child. So many many years of barrenness. So she had her struggles, but she had a a rich life and she had a rewarding life and she had a fulfilling life and she had a a life of living with and walking with a guy who lived with and walked with God. And and she was a she she had astonishing faith. Now some of the stories we read about her is when her faith kind of stumbles a little bit, but but she is a woman of astonishing faith. And it's manifested in, in a couple different ways. And one is when Hebrews tells us that it was by faith she received the ability to conceive. In other words, she had the kind of faith that produced a miraculous birth. Okay, that's, you know, that's pretty significant faith. And, and another place that her faith comes out is, is her confidence in God 
that even when her husband is dropping the ball, God's taking care of her. So in those incidences, uh, particularly the one with Pharaoh and the second one, the one with Abimelech, in those cases, here's a woman who just goes, okay, my husband said to do this and I'm going to do it because God's in charge. My husband's not. God's in charge. And she had faith and she had confidence in God. It's not that she didn't have faith and confidence in her husband, but for, for you ladies who have faith and confidence in your husbands, you know we dropped the ball. And in those hours, you must also have confidence in God. And if you don't, you're in deep trouble. And Sarah had the kind of faith that could face a crisis like the crisis with Pharaoh or the crisis with them. Just imagine the predicaments that she finds herself in and yet she continues to walk by faith in those circumstances. She's a great woman of faith. And it's been a pleasure to study her life. And then we come to chapter 23 and we read about her what we read about everybody is that she died. Because it's appointed unto men to die once. Because through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And as great as this woman was, Here we come to this point of the story and we remember how tragic that decision was was that was made back in the garden. And Adam and Eve chose to live for self rather than to live for God. And through them, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so now here we come to this story and after we spent six months or more, seven or eight months, how long we spent on the life of Abraham and Sarah and we come to this and we studied all this and we've looked at this wonderful things about this wonderful couple and their faith and the great things that God accomplished and the great things that God did through their lives and the miraculous things that happened in their lives and their astonishing faith and their astonishing righteousness. And still, at the end, as with all of us, are the consequences of sin and the consequences of death. And then we understand, maybe more than we've understood before, how much we all, no matter how much we love God, no matter how good we are, how much we all need a Savior. And Sarah needs a Savior. And Abraham needs a Savior. And you and I need a Savior. And we need someone who can triumph over our greatest enemy which is death. And so Sarah dies. And Abraham, it says, he, he goes in, he, he goes in to weep and he, he mourns for her and he weeps for her. And, and, and just, as a, just as an aside, I want to point out, this is Abraham. This is Abraham, folks, weeping for Sarah. This is a righteous man who walks by faith who has confidence in God, who believes in the power of the resurrection, as we saw in the previous chapter, okay? who was willing to sacrifice his own son because he believed in the power of resurrection. This is Abraham weeping for his wife. It is appropriate that men and women of faith weep for those they lose. I am offended by those who go to John chapter 11 and when they see Jesus weeping, say he was weeping because of the unbelief of his friends. He wasn't weeping because of the unbelief of his friends. He was weeping because of the loss that his friends had incurred. That's why he was weeping. Because he weeps as he tells us to. He weeps with those who weeps, who weep and he rejoices with those who rejoice. 
And so it is not inappropriate that Abraham, even though he believes in the power of the resurrection, he believes in the power of his great God, even though he has that confidence, he has suffered on a temporary level a very great loss. He has lived with this woman for 70 or 80 or 90 years or 100, however long he's lived with her. He's lived with her for, And she has been his companion. She's been his friend. She's been his support. She has, she has, she has believed when he has not believed. And when she's stumbled, he has picked her up. And they have lived this life together and he has lost his lifetime friend. He ought to weep even though he will see her again. But what's interesting is in chapter 23, which is really all about Sarah's death and the consequences of death, there's only one, one verse about Abraham's weeping. Do you notice that? There's only one verse about Abraham's weeping and the entire rest of the chapter is about Abraham's effort to secure a place to bury his wife. Now, why does he need to secure a place to bury his wife? Okay, what'd you say over here? Somebody over here? He doesn't know anything. The only thing he's got is a hole in the ground down in Beersheba, a well. Okay? That's the only thing he's got. Okay? It's not a very good place to bury your wife. Okay? He doesn't have any place. Why does he not have a place? Why is he wandering around? Because he's obeying God. And he's been obeying God all these years and he's been wandering around and he's sitting there now in front of his wife's body weeping and mourning for her and he's going, I don't have any place to bury her. What a minute. What do you mean he doesn't have any place to bury her? What did they do with, with Jacob when Jacob died in Egypt? What did they do? They took him back home, right? What did they do with the bones of Joseph? They took him back. So why doesn't Abraham do that with Sarah? Why doesn't Abraham take Sarah back home to Herod to bury her? Pardon? He's not to go back there? What? And you're all you're you're all right, and you're all kind of dancing around to answer the question. The answer to the question is, it ain't home. Heron's not home, folks. The promised land is home. And so now Abraham has a crisis. The crisis is he's he's in the land of promise, but he's a stranger and alien in the land of promise, and he has no place to bury his wife. And so we spend an entire chapter figuring out how he's going to bury his wife. And we discover something. The chapter 23 is not about so much about the death of Sarah. And it's not about Abraham's loss or Abraham's mourning. But it's about Abraham's faith. Right? Because to Abraham, this is the land that God has promised him. This is where Sarah needs to be buried. I can't bury her in Haran. Haran's not home. This is home. Funny thing for a stranger and an alien to say, isn't it? How does he say it? He says it by faith. And so chapter 23 is just emphatically communicating to us, once again, the faith of Abraham that says, I want to bury my wife here because this is the place that God is going to give to me. Okay? Well, next week we'll pick up that story and cover as much of it as we can, uh, beginning there at the beginning of chapter 23. Okay?